Lighting Podcast. We're talking about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We tweet at Podcasting Light, and you can find us on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This is our final episode of the season, and for the final episode of the season, we have brought back our co-host, Teresa Unfried. Welcome, Teresa. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you back. How have you been? I've been well. Can you remind us all where people can find some information about you and your company online? Certainly. Uh, Taj Event Productions can be found at tajeventproductions.com. We tweet at Taj Events, and we are on Facebook under Taj Event Productions. All right. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah. And to round things out, we have someone from a state we've never spoken to who works in a part of the industry we have not spoken to at all yet, and that would be Mr. Bobby Hale. Welcome, Bobby. Oh, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be on the show. Oh, thank you for joining us. Uh, so you work for High End Systems, correct? That is correct. High End Systems in Austin, Texas, manufacturer of uh, three product lines, the hog controller, the uh, LED automated fixtures, and the digital lighting fixtures. Okay. So those are the three product lines that we uh, manufacture here in Austin, Texas. And uh, High End is owned by Barco. That is correct. In 2008, High End Systems, who had been held privately and with the venture cap called Generation Partners, was wholly purchased by Barco, a Belgian multinational. Okay. And we were purchased as the, uh, our core competency was creative lighting, and that's the purpose they uh, purchased us. They, uh, much as we did, saw the convergence of lighting and video on stage. And of course, Barco is known for their video presence, and it made sense that they uh, would purchase uh, High End, which also had the same vision of conversion of lighting and video on stage. Specifically, uh, we were purchased, I believe, for our intellectual property as it pertained to digital lighting, as well as the digital lighting products at the time, DL3, uh, Axon, and the Orbital Head. Okay. Now, how long have you been with High End, and what is it that you do now? Okay. Well, uh, I have been at High End Systems now for 24 years, and currently uh, I am working as a business development manager uh, focusing on sales in the different vertical market we call uh, system integrators and fixed installations. So just put in layman speak, I'm, I'm recreating uh, sales channels and building relationships with uh, designer specifiers, system integrators uh, that actually specify and install our products into permanent installations. Who are the players in that market? Like, what kinds of companies are the players in that market? Well, having just moved from engineering after being there for 10 years managing the department, uh, you know, I just got into it in February. So, you know, opportunistically, I have just been looking at the existing high-end systems dealer network. Uh, and so the people that I've currently been working with are the system integration people at Four Wall, at Bandit Lights, at Barbizon and visiting other smaller dealers that don't have a national footprint like those companies. And then, and, uh, you know, calling on specified visual terrain, SDM, Vortex Lighting. Early on, uh, I basically, I'm just splitting my time 50-50. 50% with the actual dealers that do this system integration and have the value-added design and uh, installation staff. And then half my time, like... Uh, Reintroducing high-end systems to uh, people like Ann Militello, uh, Lisa Passamonte-Green, and others that uh, uh, Steve Lieberman, uh, Scott Chimleski, just some of the designers out there that are actually getting some of the larger uh, installation jobs. Well, and people who are seriously in the architectural space. Correct. Not just sort of the architainment side, like actual architectural LDs. Yeah, so it's uh, what Barco likes to call those designers. They, they work in a, uh, an area we call visitor attractions, whether that be nightclubs, casinos, museums. Uh, we would consider all those uh, visitor attractions in the parlance of uh, Barco. How did you end up moving into this, into this job from engineering? Well, prior to me being in engineering, I was a product manager uh, helping to launch the digital lighting products, the DL1, the Catalyst Media Server, and the first uh, orbital head that actually attached to large-scale projectors. Um, three years into that, uh, we actually created the 
the uh, digital lighting market space. And because of that, the venture capitalists uh, brought back Richard Bellevue because while he was on his sabbatical, he was writing a lot of uh, patents. So when I got yanked out of product management to help Richard run engineering, I always knew at a certain point that I wanted to basically circle around and get back into product management. Uh, this past year like uh, marked a decade working in engineering. So I started to keep my eyes open to see what kind of opportunities there were within high-end systems and Barco. And as we were reorganizing our sales efforts based on the new product line uh, that we had created in engineering, once again, I saw an opportunity. But opportunistically, again, you know, I saw a very disruptive technology being created in my department, and that was us actually designing the first uh, white light LED-based theatrical lighting or concert lighting, uh, where instead of using traditional RGBW or RGBWA to uh, create the colors coming out of a, a fixture, we always saw that we couldn't quite get the white that we needed. So I saw that we were developing these uh, high-powered white light engines using our standard CMY color mixing wheels. And when I saw the national sales position open, you know, I, I made a move for it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. You know, since you went there, and since it's a really exciting kind of thing, why don't we just go straight into it and talk a little, little bit about what that fixture is and what that technology is. The, what, what is that fixture that you're currently focusing on? Well, there the, uh, there's actually two. There's the Solospot CMY Pro, which is our 13,000 lumen uh, white light LED engine fixture that would compete with uh, products that are about you know 700 watts if it was a metal halide. And then we had a flagship with the Solospot Pro 1500, and that has a 400 watt white light engine that outputs 20,000 lumens. Uh, that That's pretty impressive. Picture, <laughs> it is very impressive, and it, it all comes back down to the technology that we've developed or co-developed, and uh, it's just amazing the efficiency of the optics. And uh, if, you, if you want to get a little technical for a second, sure. we all know that uh, you, know, you can push a lot of energy through LEDs, and basically you put as much current to these LEDs uh, up to the point where they like basically you burn the leads or they desolder themselves. So, you know, we found the fine line where we were able to get these uh, LEDs in a cluster on an aluminum board. And I think a lot of people in your audience might understand chip on board. So it's basically a matrix of white light LEDs. And what makes it so efficient is uh, each LED has an actual micro lens on the LED. And then after the the uh, micro lens, we have a lens array that basically collimates it even further. So uh, we're getting an amazing amount of efficiency, whereas in a standard optical train, you have a, a lamp and you have a arc and you have a reflector that basically surrounds the arc and you try to capture as much as that light and push it forward uh, into coherent, congruent light moving forward into your uh, collection optics. Well, our new white light LED engines, the LEDs are facing forward and without getting too technical about the optics, basically, um, you know, we have this chip on board, small LED. We have this uh, lens array that focuses even more light. So we're getting a lot more light pushing forward versus being scattered and lost than in, in most traditional uh, optical systems. More well, precision and more... Coherent light, I guess, is what you would say. Yeah, I guess that's a good word for it. <laughs> Let's uh, you know. Let's just get a comparison here. Let's say an Xbot versus the Pro 1500. What's the efficacy difference between the two? You know, I want to say something like an Xbot probably has like uh, you know, if it, if we're lucky, 30 percent. That's probably a high number. Uh, we're pushing well over 60 percent with the white light LED. That's very impressive. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's phenomenal and. You know, when I was seeing us develop this technology at first, I didn't believe it. Coming from the uh, digital lighting side where I was a product manager and I was seeing all the uh, problems we we're having with trying to get uh, more and more light out of these like uh, projectors. And, you know, you see the people like Sony, Barco, all these huge billion dollar corporations with large uh, research and development dollars actually having a problem with uh, reducing the size of the projector and getting more light out. So when we started seeing some of the, the photometrics that we were playing with, it was quite astounding. And up until the point we actually released the product, when I was still showing it to uh, some of our dealers, 
one time I was uh, with uh, Eric Beyer with uh, Claire Solutions, and I was showing him the Pro 1500, and we were talking about it being a, a 400 watt light engine, and then we were just looking at this beam in the demo room, and it was just like you know 20,000 lumens, 6,500 Kelvin, completely flat field. It was just astounding, and it just you know I knew I made the right decision then when I was showing it to a customer, and he was just like dumbfounded, and I you know I was like wow this it can't be true. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it seems like it's, it's sort of as disruptive as taking a an HMI bulb and sticking it in a moving light. Oh, suddenly this is arc source, and it makes all this light. Oh, my God, I can't believe how much light it makes. Exactly. So initially, the game in uh, moving light technology was basically, you know, your, your optical system becomes more efficient as your arc source gets brighter and smaller. So everything scales, right? So you have a you have a, a large arc, you have to have a large reflector, which means you have to, everything else is, has to be large. So the race to make the most uh, efficient fixture was actually a race amongst the, uh, the lamp manufacturers. Yeah. So at first they were going bigger and bigger and bigger with the lamps, but eventually it sort of reversed. I think it start, sort of started with the platinum uh, lamps with Philips where the arcs started getting smaller and smaller. And I think they basically adopted technology that came out of uh, projection lamps. Okay. Because projection lamps uh, have, especially the smaller, like UHP lamps that you will find in a lot of prosumer projectors, they have like one one millimeter, two millimeter, three millimeter gaps. And in the lighting industry, we're dealing with five, seven millimeter gap. I mean, huge gaps. So as as they were able to get those those uh, gaps smaller, you know, the efficiency went up. As I understand it, there's there there's the smaller the arc, the lower the CRI in a lamp. Uh, you know, it's been a while since I've actually worked on a uh, lamp project. Um, you know, early on high end, we used to work on a lot of the, the lamps. We would almost co-develop, if you will. Uh, we, we co-developed the MSR 575 lamp for the Studio Spot, uh, 575 series. They, you know, these, uh, these rare earth chemicals or elements that they put into these lamps, they, they have certain elements that make certain colors and everything has to do with like uh the pressure of the lamp like ignition voltage and uh the how long the uh the arcs are going to survive you know they have all these different variables and how quick how quickly whatever gases they put in there will devitrify the quartz so it's a fine balance when they're like tuning these lamps for output brightness longevity stability of color temperature uh and then cri as you mentioned and um, I can't necessarily say that those two things correlate, that you have to like lose CRI in order to get a smaller arc gap. But, you know, it could be true. I just, you know, I do know this much. I know that in order to take the red out of your lamp, it removed uh, like a brown ring in a couple of our fixtures that we had to remove something called dysprosium. Okay. <laughs> that much I do know. Because <laughs> we, uh, you know, we worked feverishly with Philips to try to come up with, uh, you know, the, the lamps that went into the... Uh, the 575s, and we actually helped co-develop a product called the MSR 575-2, and the Dash 2 gave it the uh, resilient white that gave everyone the perception that the, the studio color and studio spot 575s uh, were brighter than they actually were. Going back to that, so I mean, you were with the company back when those fixtures were created. What, 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 what role did you play with those fixtures? And that time, I was actually a project manager in the engineering department. That fixture was actually developed from, we were working with Philips, we knew about the MSR lamps, um, it hadn't quite become a industry standard. You know, I think you mentioned the HMI lamps, and I think that's, uh, you know, Clay Packy in their Golden Scan used those, and they were like double-ended, and then we started seeing these MSR lamps being developed, and I guess, you know, there's the 1200 watt that went into the Cyberlight. And then moving forward to the 575, for some reason they had a problem with the 575, and that's when we got really involved. But uh, um, my my role was as project manager, and that was like, uh, you know, TrackSpot was my first. And I guess it would have been something we called the Chrysler Light, which was the predecessor to the CyberLight. And that we actually worked with Stefan Graf with uh, Fantasy Lighting, where we built, uh, I think it was like 150 custom what they call the 1200 watt IntelliBeam for the Chrysler technology dome. 
I believe in Detroit. And this was a massive like showroom to showcase uh, Chrysler cars. So we took that technology and refined it and came up with the Cyberlight. I think what is most notable about the technology that we brought with Cyberlight was uh, lithography. And we were the first uh, company to introduce uh, glass gobos uh, because we have uh, an optical lab here at High End Systems where we do uh, deposition to create our color media, the dichroic filters. And then we actually started coating aluminum so we could etch patterns. So the Cyberlight CL was the first picture that uh, had glass gobos. Up, to, up until then, everyone had metal etch gobos. I see. So we uh, basically introduced a technology that has really changed the way you see shows today because, you know, the, the patterns have a higher resolution and some of the theatrical patterns that we were able to produce now, you know, just imagine if we were still etching metal. Oh, absolutely. Some of them simply wouldn't be possible. Yeah, some of them, like, I, I remember when a cone had to have three little lines in them because yep. the center had to be held, so. And it's just not the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But so you mentioned the optical lab in Texas. Now, um, when I was first learning about High End, which was around the time that Cyberlight was coming out, I, I kept seeing the name Lightwave coming up. Uh, now, uh, what was the, what was Lightwave's association with this? Okay, so Lightwave was actually the first uh, company that I worked for, and uh, I just sort of merged it all in my mind. It's funny how our mind works, but uh, yeah, Lightwave Research and High End Systems were both owned and founded by. Lowell Fowler, Richard Bellevue, and Bob Shockrell. I see. What happened, what, I mean, this is like smart, I think. Lightweight Research was a manufacturing and research and development arm of the company. And high-end systems was the marketing and sales. So I'm not, I'm sure there were some uh, creative ways of financing the business early on <laughs> that happened. But uh, when we were actually purchased by Generation Partners, not purchase outright, but they bought a, a large equity stake during the... When was uh, that? That was, uh, I, I don't re quite recall the date. I just remember it, it was because we actually were in a pretty nasty lawsuit with a company called Verilite up the road in Dallas over patent infringement. And uh, it was costing a lot of money. So we needed a... Uh, we believed that we weren't infringing, that we had plenty of prior art to prove that the Verilite patents were invalid. So... We were going to fight the fight, but that required a large amount of capital. And so that's when we had to basically find a financial partner that was willing to look at the uh, prior art, have their attorneys uh, have their opinion, and then invest their money, you know, if they thought that it was a, a good gamble. And that was a company called Generation Partners in New York City. I see. So Lightwave Research did also have the uh, optical lab. That's where we created all the color media that was installed and all the products being manufactured at the time. And we did that because, A, we knew color was the most important thing in the industry. And secondly, we wanted to hold a tighter tolerance. So, you know, Richard Bellaby always likes being master of his own destiny. So instead of like having to work out problems with a, uh, a dichroic glass vendor, he just decided to go at it himself. So we bought our first optical deposition chamber from a company called Balzer in Germany. And subsequent to that, we built three of our own chambers. And today we still use those three chambers and we coat six planets, 30 inches each with every run. So it's quite a phenomenal like story within itself that we were able to uh, not only adopt this technology, but design our own optical deposition chambers that rival those being built by uh, you know other semiconductor type companies. Well, there is something to be said for, you know, if we're going to need this product, for the next 30 years, let's not outsource. Let's figure out a way to do a way to do it ourselves. Oh, absolutely! It's yeah. Austin, uh, in Austin, Texas, we were very keen on being very vertical. So at one point in time, uh, when High End was the biggest back in the in the 90s, uh, we had our own uh, metal fabrication facility, mm -hmm. as well as you know optical depositions. We had our glass. We had our sheet metal. Uh, the only things we farmed out at that time were uh, printed circuit boards, optics, and uh, some of the uh, the diecast parts. I see. But so you know, the the, the moving mirror uh, market was only going to last so long, and then you guys brought out the moving heads. Correct. And, and that, suddenly we were confronted with Studio Color, Studio Spot, and those hung on for a pretty long time. Yeah, they're very well designed products, and. The stepper motors we use in our products, you know, they 
they're built to do millions of cycles in copiers and printers. So they will last quite a long time. It's like, uh, I don't, I'm not so, so sure that even some of the older studio colors that are still out there have, have reached a million moves, if you think about it. So yes, uh, studio color, studio spots, Cyberlight, I still see them. They're great fixtures, but they, they waste energy and consume too much electricity. And there's a lot of like, ecologically, a lot of negative things as far as like the lamps. So those lamps have a lot of nasty things in them. You know, they are full of mercury. They have something called Krypton 85, which is a radioactive element. If everyone breaks around you, don't inhale. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Hold your breath so you can get out of the room. <laughs> so yeah, those like, uh, it's, it's no mistake that when these things ignite, that there's a little small explosion. You know, it's like all these, like this mercury, Krypton 85, it's a big chemical reaction happening, similar to what happens uh, on the sun. Josh Bokes, the, the father of the MSR lamp, like he figured out a way of like, you know, recreating that 5,600 Kelvin light that comes from the sun. And it, and, but unfortunately it has a lot of like really hazardous materials in it. So I'm thinking that this white light LED technology is something that uh, first the early adopters are going to embrace because it's like great technology, but eventually it's probably going to be legislated that we're not going to be able to have these metal halide lamps anymore because we don't want these in our landfills. And oh, by the way, we don't want you consuming 15 to 1600 watts of energy to get 20,000 lumens when you can have it for 560 watts. So I just really think that, uh, you know, high-end systems were on the right track as far as providing you as a creative designer, the tools that you expect to have, you know, we still give you the colors, everything that you have with a normal metal halide picture, you can now have with the white light LED picture. So you're not having to compromise anywhere. You still have the same colors and output. You'll get no argument from me there. It's, you know, it's, it's definitely impressive to me that the color temperature of the, of the fixture is what it is that the field is flat. I mean, especially, you know, we, we talked about cyber, Cyberlight for a minute there. Cyberlight had an extremely peaked field, which is great for some things, but, you know, generally I feel like, especially if you're lighting objects with, with, with fixtures, you want a flat field. And seeing this move to flat fields on moving lights has been awesome. What's the CRI on the, on the 1500? Uh, it's a, close to 80. It's not quite, we haven't quite been able to, like, achieve some of the CRI of uh, some fixtures that are out there. But, you know, that will come with technology and over time. Okay, so, you know, so we're at a place, you know, where, where the, maybe the CRI isn't where, isn't where we want it to be yet, although there are some pictures on the market right now that have arc bulbs that I won't name that have, have CRIs that are, are similar to that. And some of them are from very mature manufacturers, which was kind of surprising. But so the field is very flat, the color temperature is great, and also the, the colors that one can make using the color filter system are what one would expect from a fixture that's to be used for concerts, but also to be used for theater. Correct. So, um, you know, how is that sort of thing determined? How, how is the color package determined for that fixture or any fixture? How is the color temperature of the actual source determined for this fixture or any fixture? Well, I'd like to say that it's specified. Uh, we have to work within the constraints of what is available to us as far as like an LED source and then work with our optical lab and and using the their capabilities, optimizing, or basically, I don't even say optimizing, it's everything is compromised in design. So you have to give a little bit of this to get a little bit of that. So everything in design is a compromise. So, um, you know, obviously we, since we don't make our own LEDs, we have to look at what's on the market and use those with our optical deposition capabilities, try to fine tune the CMY to get the best uh, colors we can obtain with the light source. So it's just an iterative process. And of course, you know, we're always, CRI is always in the back of our mind, as well as, you know, the perceived brightness of the fixture. So we will tend to, and I think most manufacturers do this, and, uh, and it's not even the lamp, the manufacturers as much as the lamp manufacturers. You're starting to see more lamps that are 7,000 Kelvin. They have more blue it's a more blue-white because our eye perceives blue-white as being brighter than something that's, uh, you know, let's say 5,600 Kelvin uh, with the same output. Because I've been in demos plenty of times when I used to actually sit in and watch the X-Pot being shot out against other fixtures. The beam was perceived to be less bright because we had a uh, warmer color temperature, and that was perceived to be less bright. Those are the type of discussions that we have with the product management and engineering. 
So we always try to listen to what the creative people that use our products want to have. And then we have to balance that with basically the building blocks we have to design something that's functional as well as affordable. All right. That makes sense. Can, you know, do, do you think you can walk us through the entire process of a new fixture from conception to shipment? I know you had, you had talked a bit about, last time I saw you, about you, know, you get a source, you start putting it on the optical rails, you start moving it around and seeing what it can do. Yeah, so the early days, it was like, wow, the dark ages of lighting, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> we, would, we had like optical rails, and this was even before we started working with uh, you know, ZMAX or, or like similar optical ray tracing CAD. You know, that's what we have now. We have like these computers and uh, we take a source and we do a bunch of ray tracings and we figure out what the optical train should be. And then you'll go mock it up and make sure you have to put your color wheels in, you know, size your gobo wheels, you know, basically take something that's Z-Max and we mock up like an alpha just so we can see like where our art, our light artifacts are going to be like, how much light we can actually push through. But going back to when I started, you know, we would get a lamp and we'd put it on an open rail and it'd just be like, you know, like 50,000 lumens in open air. And we would, you know, you had the choice of, do you want an elliptical reflector or do you want a parabolic reflector? And parabolic is what, uh, you know, people like Clay Packy used to use. That's why they had such a nice even field, but they didn't get quite the output that we did with some of our lights and we always chose elliptical and the properties of an elliptical uh, reflector would give you that peakiness that you talked about in cyber lights, that hot spot, if you will, in the middle with the fall off to the edges. And um, so early on, we'd get a lamp and we'd design a reflector and we'd put the reflector and the lamp on an optical rail and we'd just start putting <laughs> color filters in front of it and just we'd just try to build the optical rail to the point where, you know, we had sufficient dimming good color mixing, the, you know, clarity of the projection and the zoom range that we wanted. And once we had that, then we would like start working with the mechanical engineers and actually creating the mechanical assemblies. So the, you know, the color wheels and the, you know, the color wheels need to move in and out. So there's stepper motor that's on a pulley that, you know, connects to uh, like a pinion gear that's on the wheel and it spins the wheel. You know, we, we work with the lab to, work on the actual like uh, pattern of the color. So the, the gradient that goes on the color wheel. So it ha takes very many disciplines. You know, you have your optical engineering, your mechanical engineering. Of course, let's not forget about the printed circuit board guys that have to create the drive circuits that uh, drive these motors. And we have the software guys that work, uh, you know, at the application level of this product, like they create the OS. So it, it's a great team of uh, very talented people to make a robotic light. So, so we go from the optical rail to having all these like little sub assemblies that are designed for each like uh, parameter in the, in the light. And then you have to actually package it. And that's when a lot of times when the problems start because, you know, you have this huge, tremendous heat source and the mm -hmm. biggest, one of the biggest arts in automated light fixture design, I believe, is the evacuation of all that heat. Because basically, you know, you have this 1200 watt heater that wants to cook everything in the head, including your, your optics and your, and your, uh, your electronics. So, you know, and you've you seen, have to find out how to fan, how to put a fan on it and how to keep it cool. Exactly. So all those things get tweaked until you have the final product that you think is going to be the final product. And you start <laughs> throwing in a thermal chamber or humidity chamber. A fog chamber and you start seeing all the problems that our end users will see in the world like let's say you're you know let's say it's an expat in las vegas doing a shed tour or whatever you know they're, they're going to reach 105 degrees so that's like on the uh upper end the max operating ambient temperature of that expat but you know we have to test that because our customers are going to see that and then they won't appreciate the light turning off <laughs> probably not so you know that's that's like all the old school, the new school is this white light LED and it's super efficient and doesn't have IR and doesn't have UV coming out of it and it's super cool. And because of that, you know, the Pro 1500 and the Soulspot CMY Pro are virtually, I don't want to say silent, but they're very quiet. And uh, recently we did a, a shootout up in uh, Seattle at an opera house 
And of course, the folks at the Opera House, they had a sound meter with them. And they went from fixture to fixture to fixture. When they got to our Pro 1500, they had to keep on resetting it because they couldn't get a reading because there was more background ambient noise from their HVAC on the stage and they could read standing next to the fixture. So I thought that was a big compliment from the uh, sound meter. Most definitely. <laughs> uh, I mean, I also, I've, I've done theatricals in spaces where, where the fixtures are just placed so close to the audience that the decision was made, well, the entire rig has to be VL1000AS because the rig has to be silent. You know, we can't bring anything else in because nothing else is silent. Like, that is silent. Yep. And it's been strange that people have just sort of grown to accept the amount of noise that lighting rigs produce now. And do you, do you, know, do you think fixtures like the Pro 1500 are going to start shifting that back towards, no, they shouldn't be making this much noise. You know, you shouldn't hear the sound of, like, 30 moving lights shouldn't be audible to the level that they're audible now, even from 60 feet away. You know, if you look at, like, theater and opera, you know, they are very sensitive in some situations, I guess, depending on the genre of the theater. And uh, I think, you know, the fact that we've sold uh, the Pro 1500 to the uh, Vienna Opera House, the Berg Theater in Vienna, the Opera Zurich in Switzerland, these are very conservative, old-school lighting guys and old-school theater operators, the Berg being the second oldest uh, theater in Europe, and they're very conservative. And uh, you know, we we've sold units to those. So as soon as they saw the the light and how quiet it was, as well as the feature set with framing, you know, we instantly uh, sold product. So, well, it's very important to that industry. I mean, the whole thing with live. I mean, you can't edit it out. You can't do anything about it. It it is really important to to the audience members to not be pulled out of whatever's happening on stage. So, I mean, that's that's a great thing to have. Well, yeah, and you know, and, and, the, and the big difference between musical and opera is that in musical, they're mic'd, but they're not an opera. Mm. No. Voices are very, very powerful, but you, know, you don't want to start adding things into the room that are going to add this low-level white noise hum for convenience, essentially. That is going to negatively impact the audience's uh, experience. Yes. So, so, to your point, I think over time... People will, I think uh, now people are, are dealing with the noise and they're hanging pictures further away from the stage and doing things mm -hmm. to, to try to like compensate for the noise of the pictures. I think the pictures of tomorrow are going to get closer to the set and actually maybe even be part of the set. Who knows? That's what we're hoping. Anyway. Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that. I would love that. Yeah. So there's, a, there's, a, there's also a wash light in the line, right? Yes. It'll be a solo wash. And because, okay, so, you know, designing and innovating is always a, a learning experience. Uh, we thought, oh, you know what? We're just going to take this Pro 1500 400 watt engine and we're just going to slap it into a wash fixture and we'll have a, a sister unit in like three months. Well, it didn't happen <laughs> to work that way. <laughs> this, uh, this light engine just didn't want to work well in a wash light. And that was counterintuitive to us. And so we had to go back and redesign the light engine. And we actually, it, it, it's now a six, 600 watt engine in the wash light. So, but it will put out 30,000 lumens and we'll have CMY color mixing, have a fixed color wheel, have a beam wheel and uh, have shutters. So it's gonna be a fully featured uh, white light, 30,000 lumen uh, wash light. But uh, it, it won't come out until September because of you know, what I afford mentioned that, uh, you know, because was, you have was, to change things. we had to move things around. Yeah, we had to innovate right. again because, you know, our our spotlight uh, engine wouldn't work in a wash. Uh, now, now, you said shutters. You mean uh, so it would, they would act like barn doors? Yes, internal. Oh, wow. Yes. So, yeah, we're going for it all this time, Jason. It's like uh, <laughs> you know, our conversation was, uh, you know, high-end systems sort of vacated the automated lighting space. We knew when we were coming back that, uh, A, we had to be uh, have, have innovation. B, we had to be priced right. And of course, you know, we always strive for quality. So I believe, you know, both the uh, Pro 1500 and when you see the Pro Wash light, I, I call it the Solo Wash, you know, I, I think uh, people are going to be impressed and we're hoping that people realize that High End Systems is back as a uh, lighting manufacturer. It's a pretty impressive thing to come back with. <laughs> well, it, it's definitely an impressive set of fixtures to sort of make that statement with. Um, what what sort what sort of drove the uh, vacation of the 
of that segment of the market? Well, it it always comes down to finances sometimes, doesn't mm-hmm. it? <laughs> yes, yeah. it does. And, uh, you know, in 2008, well, one would, some would even argue even before 2008, uh, we started designing things that uh, were basically designed for, you know, one vertical, you know, rock and roll. And yeah. out with products like uh, Shogun and Shogun 2.5 and Showbeam and then Showpix. So we had a lot of like very big specialty products is, is how they were referred to to us by our dealers. And we sort of alienated uh, a lot of our user base and dealers. So we got that feedback. Well, subsequently, we were bought by Barco and there was a big credit crunch in 2008. Although high end was very profitable when we were purchased, you know, when you are part of a big company, you know, when people decide that, hey, there's a credit crunch going on, the economy is like uh, pulling back, uh, you make adjustments throughout the company, regardless of your profitability sometimes. So at that time, we had a choice and we decided to continue on with development and digital lighting and to come out with the DL3 with the XP200, continue to invest in what you guys didn't know about yet, which was Hog 4. Yeah. And uh, so we put a tremendous amount of money. People actually were wondering what is going on with high end. They thought that uh, because of the Barco purchase that uh, we had lost our way. What they didn't know was, you know, upstairs we had a massive amount of programmers creating the all new Hog 4 operating system, which is a tremendous amount of code, you know, millions and millions of lines of code. Yeah, that was happening in the background. So it was a it was a choice we made uh, within the company, within engineering and product management, that uh, you know we were going to invest in in the Hog Four. Well, one thing I would say is I, I don't know that it was you know people thinking they've lost their way. It's the, you know you get concerned when you see what's kind of a you know private shop like high end get eaten up by a company like Barco, and you go, oh no, what are they going to do to it? You know, what are they going to make them do? It's just, you know, users get concerned and go like, well, what does this mean? Well, maybe it means that they're just going to let you do what it is you do. And it looks like it worked out well for both of you. Yeah, it's it's worked out. In hindsight, uh, you know, Barco, Barco has been a great parent company to us. Um, but yeah, we all go into these relationships thinking we, we all had different thoughts. So it was a, you know, just like any relationship, we had to get to know each other mm-hmm. and to work on the relationship. But the outcome's been great, and uh, Barco has been a great parent company to us, and uh, they've opened some doors for us, and we've opened doors for them, so it's working. That's great. I mean, it's the great unknown when you start when you step into that kind of new relationship anyway. So, you, I mean, it's great that you had the, yes, we didn't see anything for a bit, but yes, it was great that you had that time to work on Hog4 and to come up with these new ideas. Yes, yes. I think uh, Barco as a parent company has been uh, really patient. You know, it's like uh, they're not a software company, or ha- right. they are now. But when they bought us, they were a projector company that had medical imaging, and they had a defense division. They're all about hardware. And when we came to them with a business plan that had three years of software development without a single dollar return, <laughs> it was a fun meeting to be in. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> like they didn't understand that. So, and then they didn't understand that after that three-year investment that. Uh, you know, there'd be continued investment because we'd continue to add features, you know, and then to tell them lighting consoles have a product life cycle of anywhere from seven to 10 years. You know, that's a pretty long life cycle for anybody other than potentially some of my colleagues in defense that sold display panels to like helicopters. Um, yeah, those type of life cycles, you know, you don't see that in projection. You don't see a, a projector that's sold for seven years. Yeah, right. you know, you maybe 18 months, two years if you're lucky. So we came to the table with a three-year plan, but a 10-year product life cycle. So, you know, 13 years, someone goes yeah. to kindergarten and graduates. And that's the, that's the life of uh, <laughs> the development and the life cycle. They, they just looked at us like, are these guys crazy? <laughs> so, of course, you go to historical data and have to pull it because you need to, like, show basically Hog 3, which wasn't the best uh, example. You know, Hog 3 was a big uh, lesson for all of us. So what was your association with the control consoles, any? Fortunately for me, one of my peers, Robbie Bruce, was uh, he was the director of software. So I handled the mechanical portion of the project, and he handled the software. 
So I was kept abreast of what we were doing, but I wasn't there living the day to day. And uh, really, that's a, you know, to watch these guys churn out that operating system and to see our test engineers uh, go through all their regression testing and seeing, you know, they use what's called an agile approach. Um, they get a lot of work done and they've done a lot in a very short amount of time. I'm very proud of those guys. So, you know, on, on a management side, since, you know, so I noticed that your degrees are from management schools, right? Yes. Uh, so how many people touch a fixture or a console during its, during its development cycle? Hmm. Okay. So, uh, I don't want to get into numbers because I don't really want to broadcast how many people we have upstairs, but, uh, I can tell you that, that, that every, every software engineer must be proficient on the board when we hire someone to work on hog four, they go through a grueling interview process where they interview with everybody and all but one person on our team has a master's degree in software engineering or electrical engineering. So they're very smart folks. Uh, every, every software engineer must be proficient in programming as well as like the hog programming syntax. Mm -hmm. And it'll take a new employee anywhere from three to four months of just sitting in meetings and reading code and playing around with things before we even let them like, uh, work on a bug. So they have to be very well versed before they go in and actually add features or fix bugs because what they do might break something very large and we don't have time to go and, and uh, fix uh, obvious mistakes, if you will. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have a full team that they program, uh, excuse me, when I say program, I mean uh, when they design software, they have to test it themselves and then they check it in the software that's checked in then gets uh, uh, passed on to the test engineering group. And then the test engineering group uh, does what's called a regression test. And we just go through all sorts of features, making sure that it, it works. And if it doesn't work, it goes into a bug database and it gets kicked back to the programmer. So it's a very iterative process. And, uh, you know, it's uh, we have now a guy named Jonathan Kemble who has taken over the reins of product or software development. And he's doing a really great job. And, uh, He's sort of changed the approach in which we uh, uh, attack feature sets and bugs. So we're, we're seeing an increase in productivity, and you'll see uh, more and more releases and, uh, and quicker cycles. Now, you know, uh, this raises a question I, you know, I know that I've had. Uh, the iterative process, I totally see how that works for consoles, especially because you can send out console software updates that add features or, or fix issues. Uh, how do you debug fixture software to the point where you know that it's not going to have any problems? Well, the final test is typically we put them in our demo room and then we have our product support people and or, you know, if we, if we know of a beta user, we'll, we'll let them use it on a real show and we'll let them program it the way they would program it. And inevitably, uh, they will find something that we hadn't tested before. But uh, with, uh, with something like a fixture, because there are a certain amount of parameters and certain amount of DMX values, you can almost create a pretty good test program where it's just like a matrix. And it's just basically having to just go through each parameter in different scenarios. Like uh, one of the big tests, if you're using a metal halide lamp, is you know you always, always bring in your magenta and then you dim it. And that's going to cook the fixture the most because that magenta 100% saturation it's, it's basically trapping a lot of heat in the back of the fixture. So, mm -hmm. and especially with that dim flag in at 50%, you're cooking that whole head. You know, over time, you sort of know what to test. You know, over time, I can say that I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of good people that, uh, uh, you know, intuitively we know what's going to break or what's going to be hard, like, uh, software for a moving fixture. It's always going to come down to your, your software where your uh, central processing unit is talking to your fans so you can optimize your fan speed so you're not blowing 100% all the time so you can be quiet. And then then your motor drivers, you're going to have to tweak on your like motor curves because you want to have smooth movement that's not steppy and it doesn't bounce at the end, but yet you want it to move fast. So these are the things that we know going into a project that are going to be the more difficult software designs that we're going to have to work on because, you know, moving head from unit to unit depending on the feature set, the center of gravity might 
make the fixture look ugly. <laughs> so so <laughs> you, you counterbalance it so it doesn't look like asymmetrical uh, in the yoke. Oh, I see. So uh, we go in going, okay, we can't have an ugly fixture. So then you start playing with motor curves and trying to ramp up these motors fast and then break them. And it's just a, you know, just something that over time we just know what we're up against and we just tweak on it and continue to work on it until in the case of a pan and tilt, we stick a, a, a laser on it and we do these moves. We do like a, you know, X, Y moves fast, slow, and we have a dot on the ball. We're at like, you know, 30 feet and we see how close we get to it and how much bobble there is at the end. And we continue to compromise speed for stability. And a lot of manufacturers in high end does this as well. We will have settings in the fixture. So if you need ultra smooth, non-bounce at the end, you know, you, you have one mode and then you have ultra fast mode for your like uh, EDM type shows where bounce at the end is not going to be perceivable. Let's uh, let's talk about you. How did you you know so you, so you went to management school? You went from for bachelor's and master's. How did you fall into uh, working with high end and working on lighting? Well, it's a funny story. I was I was going to the University of Texas and I was uh, a bartender and I used to do lights at a club downtown. And you know when I was growing up, you know I was a lifeguard because that was the highest paying job you could have as a teenager. Because they trusted you with people's lives, <laughs> so uh, so that so you know my junior year, I just looked at my resume and I was like, wow, you know, I'm about to have a business degree. Who's they're going to look at my resume and it's going to say lifeguard, bartender, waiter, and uh, you know, lighting operator. And so I looked at an IntelliBeam 700, and at the bottom of it, it said Lightwave Research, Austin, Texas. So back then, before we had the internet, um, I actually picked up a phone book and found Lightwave Research, and it was uh, not too far away from the University of Texas. And I was like, well, these people actually manufacture this product, so they must have office space. And, and I also befriended uh, a gentleman who was actually the, getting paid to program these, these IntelliBeams, because back then we just had an LCD controller, and we just pushed presets, right? But there was actually well you, that, well, you had to record them first. Yeah, exactly. Well, the gentleman who came in to record them, because uh, I got to be friend. And so anyway, he was a uh, graphic artist that worked for a propaganda magazine called Show Technology, which was put out by High End Systems. So when I decided that I needed to be uh, to grow up a little bit and get some office experience, um, I uh, called Lightwave Research and worked with this friend and like basically was probably just a real pain and persistent and my tenacity paid off with a, a, a job at uh, Lightwave Research and about uh, three months into it I was uh, working at as an inside salesperson at uh, in high-end systems working for Bob Shockerel who's now with uh, Robe and before that he was with Fairlight and Richard Bellevue came to me one day as he would with any new uh, employee, and he uh, basically challenged me to do a project for him. I did the project for him, and uh, he, I guess, liked my work. And one Friday afternoon, he came to me and said, "Hey, come here. Let's step into this office." And he, you know, basically point blank asked me, "Would you like to make more money?" And I just looked at him and said, "Well, I guess that's the, you know, that's sort of the purpose of employment. Yes, I would like <laughs> to make more money." And he described this position in engineering where I would be following up on projects that he would start. So I looked at Richard and I said, well, thank you. You know, I'd like to have the weekend to think about this. And he just looked at me and said, no, you accepted the job when you said he wanted to make more money. So I was basically drafted into engineering. <laughs> oh my gosh. And uh, my aspirations were to be, you know, a high-end salesperson. Uh, and that was trumped by uh, Richard taking me to, uh, to engineering. And the rest is basically history. You know, I, I worked in engineering for Richard until... You know, he had his sabbatical, I you know, put that in quotations because the venture capitalists kicked him out because they thought that he was too difficult to manage. And uh, so I worked with a gentleman named Mike Wood as a program manager, just basically, you know, creating all the engineering timelines and budgeting. And I would just run these weekly meetings and we'd, you know, we developed the Studio Color 250 series, uh, Xbox and, and a, a few other lights. And then... 2001, um, they asked me to become a product manager to help 
you know, be sort of like the evangelist for digital lighting. And I was working with Richard Bleasdale on the Catalyst Media Server and with Peter Wynn Wilson and Tony Gatillier on the Catalyst Orbital Head. And those were the two big uh, digital lighting products that uh, I helped launch as a product manager. And subsequently to that, we launched DL1, DL2. And then now I'm backtracking because that's when Richard Belke came back to the office. So it's been... It's been a great ride, you know. My career in lighting has put me in touch with some of the most innovative people in our industry. You know, Richard Bellevue being one of them. Uh, Peter Wynn Wilson, who not many people know this, but uh, we had him on retainer at High End Systems. Any one of his inventions, uh, we had first right of refusal. And he came to us back in the late 90s. Actually, let's see, that would have been 2000 with a product he called Wow. And even though we had him under retainer, he still made us all sign NDAs. And we went into this like uh, private room and he pulled out this thing that looked like a lightsaber. And we're like, what's that? And he goes, I call this wow. And that was the first VersaTube. Oh, oh gosh. And uh, we passed on it because <laughs> we were so busy launching digital lighting. So that's when Nils, who was at the time vice president of marketing, um, you know, he, I guess he decided that... Uh, you know, he was going to follow through on on this wow idea, and he, he went for it with uh, Element Labs. So, yeah, so we're working with Peter Wynn Wilson, you know, that day when he pulled this lightsaber out, and it had RGB color mixing in this tube, and he pulls out his laptop, and he goes, see this, Bobby? And he had a, a city skyline, and he had all these buildings lit up with this, like, product he called wow. So, you know, he's, like, definitely a visionary guy that I appreciate having worked with. And then, you know, Richard Bleasdale, his vision with uh, Catalyst Media Server being the first DMX operated video server and everything that he did with that. That was like, a, you know, Richard is a great guy and uh, he's some people think he's a bit eccentric, but I get him and he was a pleasure to work with too. So, you know, I've been very fortunate to work with uh, Bleasdale, Peter Wynn Wilson, and of course, Richard Bellevue, who's brought us like so many groundbreaking uh, fixtures including the emulator, which is now been knocked off by elation as the sniper. Yeah, I, I, I saw that. That was actually a product that uh, we developed in uh, 1989. I, I know that uh, for, you know, from when I first started working, uh, people were saying things like, I wish they'd make another emulator. I wish they'd make something like the emulator again. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. It's uh, Yeah, you know, we all like the laser-type effects. You know, we just don't want the, the variants that we have to get from the uh, health department or the... Uh, energy department, whomever it is that uh, we have to get those variances from. High-end used to have a product called uh, Laser Chorus, and that was their one and only true laser product. And after that, based on problems, not problems, but all the paperwork that you have to do with by selling a, a laser product, you know, Richard's like, you know what, I'm going to make a, a, a just a natural light laser, and that's that birthed the emulator. And that actually was a huge innovation because the platinum lamp wasn't available. We needed to create a short arc gap lamp, and uh, he co-developed that with Ushio. You know, Ushio has a lamp company. That was like, back in the 80s, that was like, you know, cutting-edge technology in both lamp and, I don't want to say it's cutting-edge technology and fixtures, but it was innovative anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly something no one had ever seen before. Exactly. So, you know, Richard Bellevue, very, very great, talented man. So, so we talked about what a white light LED can do for moving lights. And, you know, we've talked about how one of those fixtures comes to be. And we, and we talked a bit about lighting with video and the sort of emergence of that concept. What do you see for the future? In the short term, I do see us actually replacing all metal halide fixtures with uh, white light LED in, in a certain market segment because I... I do know that some pe for some people, RGBW will work. So it's very segmented. I would say professional lighting, we will move towards adopting uh, this white light LED technology. And I think as the lumen power increases, we'll be adopted more and more. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, we have like uh, the BMFL and the BL4000. Those are, you know, hot, very high powered units. But, you know, with us coming out with a unit that's 30,000 lumens with 600 watts, one can, like, uh, draw the line of innovation and see that, you know, not too in the not-too-near future, we will have something that's going to be 40,000 lumens. So at that time, and the fact that 
I see a lot of lamp manufacturers divesting out of this technology. That's for so instance, true. Philips Lamp Company is for sale if you yeah. want to buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. these other manufacturers aren't going to have a light source to build a fixture around. So, you know, white light LED is the solution for what I think is the professional end of creative lighting design. Yeah. Uh, one, 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 just one other technical question for you. And okay. I understand if this is proprietary and you can't answer. Okay. Um, you know, the way that, let's say, ETC or prism projection has gotten around the filling out the spectrum part of LEDs, it's just by adding more and more and more colors into the sources. So where, you know, the, the Celador concept that ETC purchased has seven colors. Mm-hmm. Prism has more than that. In fact, um, how how is that filling the spectrum out issue being dealt with on white light LEDs? Since as far as I understand, it, it's a blue source that's been capped white. The first thing that pops in my head is like, wow, you know what? Richard Bellevue has a lot of patents on RGB, WAW, you know, all these different like LEDs. It's like a it comes down to where our lighting has to be pretty bright to be on stage. You know, the more dyes that you have that you have to basically focus, um, it becomes an optical problem again. So if you have like seven different dyes, then you have to have what's called a TIR lens, a total internal reflectance homogenizing lens. That's going to be pretty darn big because, you know, if you have seven LEDs, you know, think about that. It's probably the size of a postage stamp. And if it's worth any type of like lumen output, it's going to be bigger. So then you have to stick this big old like uh, TIR lens in front of it just to get everything collected and bouncing around to homogenize to get a decent color to color mix. So that could be the future. It's just physically too large of a technology. I mean, it's too large right now the way we would deploy it. And I think it could be quite expensive as well. And the head would be huge. For us to get 20,000 lumens out of something that has RGBWA and all these other different colors to fill out that color spectrum, it would just uh, be too big of a head right now and too expensive. As soon as we can scale it down and get the power up, I mean, that's always the thing, right? Lighting designers have always told us, make it smaller, faster, brighter. Yeah. Well, the same goes to, uh, you know, the guys upstairs, especially Richard Bellevue. You know, it's just because we're on this white light LED innovation right now doesn't mean we're not continuing to look at other things. Mm -hmm. And like I said, you know, we thought that we would be getting rid of color wheels and that we would be doing nothing but we, we have patents on seven, eight color LED engines. And, you know, we thought that that was the future. It just isn't, the technology is not here today. So we've taken a, a, a slight detour. No, I get it. doesn't mean that, you know, we're not going to look at it in the future. We intend to continue to innovate and be leaders. Well, sure, as technology changes and as things change, we obviously will always, I mean, who knew that we could get so small and so bright with things that we're finally getting to now. Yeah, and here's the other thing, Jason. Let's not kid ourselves. The light industry, as far as like uh, LED color mixing, is very small. To get a dye manufacturer to build something for us, you know, where they want to see a million units, you know, it's hard for us to do a business case and say, yes, make me this uh, unobtainium, perfect uh, RGBWAY, whatever, CMY die. But, you know, there's a capital investment that goes into it. And then what market is going to buy a lot of it? Because, you know, lighting in itself is still just a billion dollar industry. And that includes controllers. (laughs) You know, the moving the moving light, as reported by ESTA, is like, I think 700 million globally, and that includes all the Chinese little knockoff things. So it's not very big. So then if you say that the tip of the, what we like to say in, in, in Barco is the pyramid, you know, the tip of the pyramid is where all the professional lighting is. It's a smaller total available market. And then within that, you know, you want to like deploy this brand new high dollar LED that you have to buy X amount of to make it viable for the semiconductor company to make. It's like, the math doesn't work on the manufacturer side of the LED. Yeah. You know, they if they're concentrating all their efforts into white LEDs because they're used architecturally and there's like that industry is huge, you know? Seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's where all the development is going right now. And that's why we're like, huh, why are we swimming against the stream? Why don't we just adopt this white light technology where all these companies are making it brighter and, you know, the CRI is going to be getting better. You know, everything that they're, they're working on trying to make the better LED. All these companies just racing 
towards it. And they've got bigger R and D budgets than we do. All right. Um, you know, I think we're winding down here. Uh, Teresa, do you have any thoughts that, uh, you have anything you want to get out? I don't, this has been very interesting though. Uh, Bobby, do you have anything that you want to hit? Anything you want to tell us about? No, I just want to let you know that I very much enjoyed our conversation. Too bad we're not having coffee together. Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, but you know what? I'll, I'll look you up next time in, I'm in the city. Hopefully you'll have time and we can go have a cocktail or something. All but, right. Uh, if people want to see the Solar Spot Pro 1500 in person, what should they do? They should email me at bobby.hale at barco.com and uh, we can start a dialogue. Well, I'll either come visit you personally or one of our fine high-end systems dealers uh, can give you demo demo presentation. Okay, and what's the and what's the current uh, scorecard? What what shows do you have them out on right now? Uh, the the most notable would be uh, Imagine Dragons. Uh, we have fifty that uh, just went out, and there's uh, more in Europe at this time. Some bands that I didn't really recognize, but uh, you know, it's funny that uh, right now we're having the greatest success on the European continent, and we only started shipping in in uh, January of last of this year. So we're you know just six months into people seeing the fixture, you know, asking questions. Naturally, they want to feel comfortable with high-end systems again, and that's part of what I'm trying to do, is basically uh, recreate relationships and sales channels for this product. And it's, it's not too tough a job to do because it is a nice fixture. All right, Bobby. Th- th- thanks very, very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and it was uh, nice to meet you, Teresa. It was nice to meet you as well. I'll be in the city again in the near future, so... Uh, let's not be strangers. Well, so thanks very much for joining us, Bobby. Thank you, sir. Have a good evening. Thanks for listening to the final Casting Light podcast of the first season. We'll be back on September 1st with more talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. Thanks to our guest, Bobby Hale of High End Systems. You can visit them on the web at highend.com, and you'll find both information about their new fixture, the Pro 1500 Spot, and about how to contact Bobby Hale directly there. Thanks to my co-host, Teresa Unfried of Taj Event Productions. You can visit them on the web at tajeventproductions.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, thanks for listening, and have a good show.